Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I mean, I like to think of us as an agro-dealer with a very cool mobile platform. But essentially, we are selling seed fertilizer and training using this unique financial tool. We're an organization that likes to learn and improve each year. In our drive to fully covering our costs, we need to continuously improve some of our key budget drivers. That would reduce our overall field costs and, and we'd be able to serve more farmers cheaply. I'm very pleased today to introduce Anushka Ratnayaka, the founder and executive director of MyAgro. MyAgro is a social business which allows farmers in West Africa to buy fertilizer and seed by a series of small payments via a mobile phone platform and a network of local village vendors. MyAgro helps farmers move out of poverty and has led to a doubling of farm income. It has grown almost fivefold in the last year and aims to grow to 75,000 farmers in the next five years. Anushka was an early employee at both One Acre Fund, where she was Director of Innovation and Core Programs, and Kiva, where she created the Kiva Fellows Program. Well, thank you very much, Anushka, for taking the time to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs today. It's a great privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about MyAgro. MyAgro is what we do is we help small-scale farmers save up for fertilizer and seed using their mobile phone. And essentially what this enables them to do is pay for the seed and fertilizer that they need each season in small increments which is really similar to how they buy everything else for their household. So um, I'll go into a longer explanation and you can cut where you'd like, but um, essentially, you know, smallholder farmers make up the biggest proportion of the world's poorest people. So 80% of the 2 billion people who live on less than $2 a day are smallholder farmers. And so that means that they usually buy things in increments of 50 cents or 20 cents or maybe a dollar at a local store. Um, But fertilizer and seed is something that they need um, usually $100 all at once at planting time to purchase the seed and fertilizer that will help them get a good harvest. Um, But that's the time that they have the least amount of money because they have the most amount of money nine months earlier when they've harvested their previous year's. Um, crop. And so essentially what MyAgro does is enable them for the first time actually globally to be able to pay for fertilizer and seed in the same way that they'd buy tea, oil, or sugar um, in very small increments. And we've created a system that models how people buy um, minutes for their phones, so essentially top-up minutes. But instead of buying minutes, they're topping up their fertilizer seed account. Right. And so what difference does that make? So if an average farmer with their current kind of pattern of spending and availability of cash and so forth, vis-a-vis being able to do this modular or invest in smaller sums of money, how much difference can that make at the end of the year to a farmer? So our farmers are increasing their income on average $150. And the range is actually from about $70 for a small plot of peanuts to several hundred dollars, so over $300 of increased income um, if they're planting one or two hectares of maize. And so um, so on a micro level, it makes a, a really big difference for someone who's living on $2 a day to increase their income by $150 or, or a range between $70 to $300. On a, on a macro level within the financial 
system that supports uh, smallholder farmers. It makes it, it. There's a lot of really exciting potential for the mobile layaway program that Miagra has developed. So Dahlberg, which is a consulting company, has done a lot of research around smallholder farmer financing. And they've estimated, so remember, smallholder farmers make up the biggest group of the world's poor. They've estimated that the annual need that farmers have to invest in their farm is $450 billion. And only 3% of that is currently being met through microfinance or commercial loans. When you say 3%, do you mean that like only about 12 million is available for them at all, including their own resources and cash? No, so that's... Uh, so it doesn't include their own resources, which is exactly why, uh, you know, I think that's exactly why this layaway model is really interesting, because the farmers don't necessarily have $100 all at once. That's really hard, um, especially, you know, like I mentioned, they're living on very little money each day, um, but they do have money in small increments. So they have money at harvest time. They have money as they start selling off some of the, the harvest that they've they've uh, grown. And then they sell things at a weekly market. So they're able to put 2 or $3 or $4 aside each week, which then enables them to use their own resources in a way that they haven't been able to before. I mean, what farmers tell us, you know, when I've asked them, uh, you know, why do you join my agro? Um, you know, would you ever save on your own? Why do you need us? They, they laugh and they say, no, if, if, if the money was with me, I would eat it. Meaning it's an expression to say, you know, I would spend it on something because it's safer to spend it on something today than leave it under my mattress where it's pretty risk. You know, it's it's at risk of theft or flood or fire. Um, And so what farmers value is instead of, you know, spending money on something that maybe they don't need, they can put it aside and essentially lock it away with Myagro's mobile platform so that they can leverage it, um, leverage their own resources to invest in their farm. Great, great potential there and, and crucially important. Are you a profit-making organization? Do you make revenues and how does it work? So we're, we're a nonprofit social enterprise. Um, and so essentially our nonprofit in the U.S. owns two for-profits in Mali and Senegal where we work. And we do, do earn revenue. So um, we, we earn a margin off of the packages that we sell. So each package includes seed, fertilizer, maybe some small tools if necessary, and then a fee for our services, which include delivery, technical training, and all the support services that we provide. And right now that's covering 40% of our operational costs. And our goal is to uh, cover 100% of our costs by 2021. Um, So we'll need to reach a significant level of scale and increase some of our key budget drivers, like the number of you know typical things in any organ- in any commercial activity, like the number of customers each agent serves, um, and at that point, any extra money that we earn will go back into the program for R and D and expansion. And how long have you been working at this? I know you you were involved in Kiva. Maybe it's good to talk a little bit about your own personal background and, and what led up to this. Sure. Um, so I actually started on, on the opposite side of savings. I started in microfinance and I was an early employee of Kiva in San Francisco, which gives uh, loans to entrepreneurs around the world. And uh, that was my 
that was my start into microfinance. And I was really drawn to it when Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize. And there was a lot of attention and excitement about microfinance as a as, as a really powerful tool to help people move out of poverty. Uh, and since then, there's been a lot of studies that have, have um, questioned that a bit. Um, but it was through that time at Kiva that I started working with a lot of different microfinance institutions um, through the whole spectrum of small nonprofits that were really just there to, to help people. And then uh, some more commercial entities or organizations that wanted to move into the commercial side. Um, and then in 2008, I moved to Kenya um, because I was really drawn to the operational challenges of scaling a microfinance organization. Um, and really, you know, there are so many organizations that are trying to do a lot of good in the world, but how to do that in a very um, broken market is, is quite challenging. And I think those questions are fascinating. And so in 2008, I moved to Kenya, Western Kenya, and started working with One Acre Fund when they had a thousand farmers. Uh, so really early days as well. And my job there was to develop the repayment process for how farmers repaid their loans. And it was fascinating because that first year, you know, it's pretty tough as, as pilots are. Um, and so I spent a lot of time listening to farmers and listening to how they wanted to spend their money and then observing how they actually did and who repaid on time and who didn't and why someone repaid on time and why someone would choose to, to not repay. Um, and, and it was really interesting because it was there where I started to recognize that people like to pay small amounts. They like to pay flexibly. They will over repay if they you know, sell a chicken or a goat on, on the market and have some extra cash. Um, but then I also started hearing some themes because farmers were saying, could we, could we repay our loan before you give us the loan? And we did that and repayment went above 90%. Um, and then they asked us the next year, can we start six months before you give us the loan? And then some farmers even asked, can we start giving, paying the loan a year before you give it to us? which was fascinating because they were using the language of credit, but what they were describing and asking for was a savings program. And so um, that was kind of the impetus of starting to think about uh, could a savings program actually be uh, a viable, scalable model to serve smallholder farmers. Right. That, that's fascinating because it is a very different model, isn't it? As you say, the research on microfinance has raised questions about its appropriateness and its efficacy, I guess, in certain areas. But what you're doing is, is more about financial inclusion, I suppose. Yeah, it's quite interesting because Mali is a um, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, I think it would be a very challenging country to have a scalable commercial program. Um, because population density is so low, it's 14 people per square kilometer versus hundreds per square kilometer in, in East Africa. Um, and uh, farmers are, are very poor and, and farmers in general are risk averse. And then on top of that, uh, you know, when you add the income component, it becomes quite challenging um, to take to think about taking a loan and, and have the risk hanging over you, over you that you can't repay. Um, and so what we're finding is that, you know, a savings model can work even in an incredibly challenging environment such as Mali. And um, the other thing that we're finding is that we're, we're probably working with a broader spectrum of clients than a typical microfinance institution. So we have packages that range from $20 to several hundred dollars. So we can work with someone who you know, maybe has a very small plot who wouldn't be interesting. You know, it would be very expensive for a bank to give a $20 loan. Um, but because we don't have 
Um, we don't need to do uh, due diligence on customers. Like we don't need to see if they're credit worthy. Um, essentially, it's a sales model, and anyone who has money and anyone who trusts us can can start paying for fertilizer and seed with us. And we have tailored packages for um, different crops and different sizes, depending on someone's uh, risk tolerance and and uh, interest in investing in their farm. Right, right. Clearly, access to finance and being able to, you know, buy fertilizer and so forth is crucially important. How good are farmers in your experience? There was a supplement in the in the Economist this weekend, which is about technology and farming, and it was quite frightening in, in some ways the intensity and the new technologies and so forth. But I think I, I read somewhere that the most productive farms are small farms with single crops. I think some research around that, which I found very interesting. So presumably, some farmers are better than other farmers farmers and therefore will get you know better yields and so forth and to what extent is that part of your vision to you know help with you know uh, that side of things oh it makes a huge difference (laughs) fertilizer and seed are not magic pills Uh, you have to use it correctly um, and you have to have the willingness to use it correctly um, because unfortunately more modern planting techniques uh, so actually let me take a step back most of our smallholder farmers are not using tractors and not using the machinery that we would be used to in the West or in Asia. Um, and so they're still manually planting. And so, for example, there are 33,000 plants of maize on one hectare of, uh, of maize. And so you can imagine manually planting 33,000 plants is exhausting. Um, and so uh, modern planting techniques without machinery actually means bending over, digging a hole, putting in a drop of fertilizer, pinch of fertilizer, covering it, putting in one or two seeds, covering it, and then doing that 33,000 times. That's exhausting. And so uh, it does make a very big difference um, if farmers are are good or not. Um, And so one of the things that my agro tries to do is uh, we have an agricultural team that regularly each year tries to simplify training so that it becomes the it takes the least amount of work to get the maximum amount of benefit and we assume that farmers are going to do what is absolutely easiest um so so that's how we how how we approach training and the way that we approach adoption is that we know that there are going to be some champion farmers who are really good at what they do and are interested in using new technologies or new methods and so we particularly um, look for those farmers when we expand to a new village, and we have we we try to enroll what we call the early adopters, um, and so that they uh, you know use Myagro, they follow our methods, and then they show people the combination of what seed and fertilizer plus these new methods can do. And for farmers, seeing is believing. So when they can actually see those results, the following year are the number of customers we work in that village will increase and the likelihood of them following our method also increases because they've seen it once before. And is there a cycle that you observe or a pattern from maybe first year using your program to latter years, third, fourth, fifth year in terms of A, I mean, you mentioned, I think, the rise in the amount of money that they've been you know, able to invest in their farms in fertilizer and also the, the returns. Any other patterns? Sure. So we definitely see that early. Um, so first year farmers will test us. So, you know, they they are very risk averse and they're not sure if we will actually deliver the seed and fertilizer on time like we say we will. Um, and this is particularly true in new 
villages. Um, so farmers will tend to pick a smaller package than what they actually have capacity to pay for or plant. Uh, and then the next year, based on results, they tend to um, increase the, their packages on average, um, paying 30% more than they did the previous year. And then what I'd like to see or what we'd like to see is that farmers will not only pay more, but potentially diversify uh, with Miagro or plant products during the plant crops during the dry season where they can earn more money. Um, so ideally moving towards more of a looking at their farm as an agribusiness as opposed to just a plot to feed their families each year. Right, right. And how many farmers do you work with currently? Started in 2012 with 240 farmers, and this year we're on track to serve um, a little over 16,000. Wow, it's got great growth over those years. And what's your vision? You talked about scaling, and clearly scaling's challenging in any organization, but uh, as you mentioned in Mali, I can imagine that there, it's particularly challenging. What are your goals there, and how have you found scaling generally? Our North Star, as we're calling it internally, is to reach a million small-scale farmers by 2025 and help them increase their income by at least $1.50 per day. So essentially doubling their income that they're living on now and getting them to middle income level in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so we're focused on that goal. Um, and the primary driver of that goal is going to be actually working with other organizations to replicate the Miagro model. So right now, the majority of our farmers that we serve are through direct service. So, so we've implemented the program and we're, um, we're enrolling farmers and, and managing the, the process from enrollment all the way through delivery and harvest. Um, but ideally, we would, uh, using our mobile platform and using the best practices that we've developed, work with other organizations that already have a large network of farmers, but aren't necessarily helping them access inputs and teaching them how to use the layaway model um, so that farmers can, in other countries can access, uh, access mobile layaway and access seeds and fertilizer for their farm. You mentioned the layaway. How well developed is that in Africa generally and these areas where there's what you might call, I suppose, more capital type investment? CGAP is the consultative group to assist the poor. Um, they just put out a, a very interesting report on smallholder farmers. Uh, they, they did a financial diary um, project in three countries, and it's the first time that there was there has been a financial diary um, kind of research project specifically focused on farmers. And it's interesting to note in the three countries that they worked in, I think it was uh, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Pakistan. All farmers said that they used layaway for for something um, that they needed to purchase, um, but it's not a formalized um, financial tool yet. So I. My vision is that eventually when we think about financial inclusion for the bottom of the pyramid, we will think about not just savings and microfinance and uh, maybe asset-based loans, but we'll also think about mobile layaway. So it's, it's something that, that needs to be built out. There's been a leapfrogging technologically in Africa with, mm -hmm. with wireless, hasn't there, and, and mobile mm -hmm. communications and lots of M-Pesa and organizations mm -hmm. like that that have witnessed extraordinary growth, some of them. How does what you do fit in with that? Are there operators like that that you would work with? Yes, absolutely. And we're looking for a few mobile operators that would be who already have mobile wallets that would be willing to either build in a layaway component to that wallet where your farmer could set a goal, pay for it using their mobile wallet, and then go to an um, input supplier and pick up their inputs. 
that would be the ideal. And that's it's definitely an example of a partnership that we're we're looking to build. And so so I think Myagro's mobile platform, but there are two components. One is one is factual technology, and I think it fits in really well with existing digital financial solutions uh, or digital platforms like mobile wallets um, and like M-Pesa, like you like you said. Um, and then the second component is just the you know the best practices and the technical assistance that we could provide in and how do you actually get farmers to do some financial planning nine months and ahead, nine months ahead of the planting season, so that they have enough time to pay in advance. The model that you developed, was it straightforward? Did it take a couple of iterations to get it right? How was that process? <laughs> we're still iterating. Uh, we're, we're an organization that likes to learn and improve each year. Um, and also, uh, like I said, in our drive to fully covering our costs, um, we need to continuously uh, improve some of our key budget drivers, like increasing the number of farmers uh, that we work with per agent or uh, using more uh, technology or IVR to to support farmers or the vendors who sell the cards. Um, that would reduce our overall field cost and, and we'd be able to serve more farmers cheaply. Um, right, right. So, yeah, the model has generally stayed the same, that we've stuck with savings and we've stuck with layaway. Um, what has improved is, you know, we have recognized how difficult it is for farmers to to um, to our training conversation, how difficult it is for them to follow these new methods. And so we've spent a lot more resources than originally planned on making it easier for farmers to plant. And then other things that we're looking at are we are looking at how can right now we have we have a field agent team and they manage a team of local stores that sell our scratch cards which facilitate our mobile payments. Um, and what we're looking to do is see, can those stores actually do a lot of the work of what the field agent is currently doing? So that's, a, that's some work that I'm really excited about because if, that's, if, if we're able to do that using mobile phones and IVRs and other improved technology, um, it would enable us to scale much faster. Would you describe what you're doing still in a sense in a kind of a pilot? It's quite intense what you're saying, the hand-holding and working closely and presumably building trust in a community as well takes, you know, quite a lot of time. The first few years, the first uh, three years, we're four years old. So the first three years, we're definitely in pilot and testing and iteration mode. I think I think even within the donor community and the financial inclusion community, there was a bit of... Um, there's a bit of kind of uh, amused surprise or amused watching around, will this actually work? You know, farmers are so poor. You know, we only think about farmers needing loans. Uh, so there was a lot of things that we needed to prove. Last year when we reached a pretty important milestone of serving 10,000 farmers, I think we were able to prove, okay, this, this, is, this works. And so the next few years is really about uh, developing a program that can scale. And like you said, doing a little less handholding and and more systems building so that that we're able to serve uh you know the million farmers that we want to reach in in the next uh, nine years thinking about what is it that you do you know what's the core of the service mm -hmm. that you provide is quite an interesting question that work that you've been doing with farmers gives you such a i guess deep insight into you know the challenges they have what helps them succeed spending patterns education mm -hmm. and that kind of thing doesn't it I mean, I like to think of us as an agro dealer uh, with a very cool mobile platform. Um, 
So pretty simplistic, but essentially we are selling seed and for seed fertilizer and training uh, using using this unique financial tool. And what's your experience been raising finance? I mean, you mentioned the pilot scheme, well, in the sense of the elements that you were able to show investors and people who were providing with finance. How has that been? Um, it's been it's been really great. Um, it helped that I worked at Kiva and One Acre Fund and had um, had a really good network uh, in the Bay Area. There are a number of family foundations that are really interested in supporting um, innovative, high impact um, social enterprises. And so, so I was pretty linked in um, from from an early start. Uh, thanks thanks a lot to um, my former boss at One Acre Fund and and the network through Kiva. Um, and so we've we've had a really great group of committed funders from the beginning who have helped us scale to this point, and we'll continue to fund things like expansion and R and D. Um, and we're looking, you know, the kind of the next stage of growth or sustained growth is going to be uh, either looking at, like I mentioned, partners paying for the program to to replicate it themselves, or uh, working with government or institutional funders who who are able to give a much larger multi-year uh, tranches. And what have you learned about raising money that might be useful for others on their journey? I mean, you obviously knew some people, but still they have their requirements, don't they? And you need uh-huh. to, you know, obviously you learn as you go along that experience. Absolutely. <laughs> My advice would be, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, any entrepreneur who comes up with an idea, you're so in love with that idea that you focus everything uh, that you have on on building out that idea, learning from that idea, testing it, um, you know, iterating and developing it. My biggest lesson is that's definitely how I acted. I'm very operational and uh, that's what I love. Um, and my biggest lesson is uh, while you're off in the field in Mali or <laughs> Mozambique or wherever you may be, uh, your donors uh, need to hear from you and need to hear from you regularly. Um, and so uh, partly because they need to learn with you, especially if your model is going to change a lot. Um, because if you come to them in the beginning with a plan and come to them a year later with something else, you know, you, you need to bring them along that journey. And, and most donors are really happy to do that with you um, because they want to learn as much as you are. And then it's just really important to to just communicate back results more frequently than than once a year, twice a year. And what about support on your journey? I mean, clearly donors as well can you know provide a lot of input and and, and support. Are there a few organizations or any organization that has been particularly helpful in supporting you on your journey? It's it's quite a lonely job in many ways. There there are a couple of fellowships that I've been a part of that I've been very very fortunate. Um, to get connected to. So one is uh, Milago Foundation run by Kevin Starr has a fellowship called Rainer Arnold Fellows. Um, and uh, they they were the first funder of Miagro. Um, and, and so they have a week-long retreat once a year where you get to meet a network of other fellows. Um, and it's very low-key and the idea is that you really focus on designing for impact. Um, and they bring in advisor advisors on fundraising and on board management and a number of other things. But really, the core is around designing for impact. Um, Echoing Green is another fellowship competition um, that might be a little bit more accessible. It's it's an open competition. People can apply from around the world. Um, and 
They're also fantastic for their fundraising network and for the network of fellows um, who are amazing entrepreneurs from around the world um, and can, like you said, uh, help you feel not so lonely. Um, and then Draper Richards Kaplan uh, Foundation. It's another organization that's really supported uh, MyAgro from the early days. Um, and they focus on taking you from kind of a, you know, very early stage pilot to a scaled uh, organization that's ready for mezzanine funding. Um, and they put someone on your board, uh, which was uh, in addition to giving you funding each year. And so that kind of advice and sustained advice and engagement in the organization is really special. It sounds like it's been a great journey, uh, 240 at the beginning to 16,000. And what next year do you hope to achieve? Uh, so next year we'll be at 30, 30 to 35,000. And uh, the following year, we'll be at 60,000. So we, we have a lot of work ahead of us in the next few years. What's been the biggest challenge? So there have been some external challenges. The, you know, when, I, when I moved to Mali, it was considered one of the um, best and strongest democracies in Africa. And the following year, there was a coup. Uh, and then there was a counter coup a few months later. And so, so that was quite a challenge. You know, I, I came to work with some farmers and... And all of a sudden, there are guns shooting in the air. Um, so, so that was a surprise, and it affected our ability to bring in some external talent from different countries. Uh, it affected our ability. To, you know, we did well in fundraising, but it definitely put um, some pause to new donors. You know, is is this program going to continue to run uh, when there's no government essentially for a few months? Um, and we were able to run and farmers still trusted us and continued to work with us despite that. Um, but it, it added a complexity, which is why I said communication is very, very important. Um, and then and then internally, our challenge in the next few years is is building systems and enough middle middle and senior managers to to help scale the program. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting challenge to have. Almost all of our managers and senior managers that we have have been uh, grown in-house. So we have a pretty um, heavy focus on talent development and retention. And so um, our challenge, though, as we go from 16,000 to 30,000 and 60,000 is we're just going to need, uh, you know, a, a, a many more middle managers and senior managers to help grow the program. So our ability to do that fast enough is, is going to be a very interesting challenge to, to work on. Yes, yeah, some management. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, th thank you so much, Anushka, for sharing your experience, your insights, and some of the great successes you've had. It's very inspiring. I wish you the very best of luck and success with the growth of Niagara. Thank you so much, Fergal. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.